1: I've mentioned already several times that chapters two, three, and four go together and express a common theme. That theme is that Jesus is better. He's doing something new and he's replacing something old. Well, here in chapter five, we discover that not everybody is happy about that. The next couple of chapters focus on conflict. Uh, Not everyone is embracing the new program. Not everyone wants the old system to be replaced. There are stakeholders, there are people with something to lose, and they begin now to actively and officially resist the person and work of Christ. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We should probably just notice here that Jesus was a remarkably observant Jew, Most scholars suggest that the average Jewish man would only have been able to afford to go up to one of the three main Jewish festivals in any given year. Some poor folks uh, would only be able to make it to one festival in their lifetime. But Jesus appears to have gone to Jerusalem on many occasions, for most, if not all, of the major festivals. And, And this argues against the idea that Jesus was poor in the sense that we sometimes assume Certainly he was poor relative to our standards now. Certainly he was poor relative to the riches of heaven. And certainly he was poor at the time of his birth. We know that because the offering that Mary and Joseph gave was the offering permitted to the poor. But that doesn't mean that they stayed poor. Most people are poor when they first get married. And having a baby will make you poor even if you weren't to begin with. But over time, of course, things can get better and you can move up. And it seems that Joseph did. Joseph was some kind of skilled laborer, and Jesus was some kind of skilled laborer, so it is perhaps best to think of Jesus as middle class. He had sufficient means to be an exceptionally observant Jew, and that did not come cheap. Verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, blind, Lame and paralyzed. Now, we should probably stop here and notice that if you're following along in the ESV, then you don't have a verse four. You have a verse three. We just read that, and you have a verse five, which we'll read in just a minute. But you don't have a verse four. What's up with that? The New King James has a verse four. It says here: For an angel went down at certain at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Some translations put that as a footnote. Some versions put it in, some versions have it as footnotes, some don't have it at all. So what's up with that? Colin Cruz uh, provides a very efficient answer. He says, these words are omitted by the best Greek manuscripts. However, some such belief is presupposed by 5, chapter 5, verse 7, that is. So, probably what happened here was that a scribe at some point inserted a brief explanation of why everyone was gathered there. The people believed that an angel stirred the waters, and so the scribe wanted to explain that to later Gentile readers. It probably wasn't in John's original and was likely added later as a sort of study note. Regardless, it is clear from verse 7, as Cruz indicates that the people believed something was happening, and therefore a sizable crowd regularly gathered in that place. Verse 5. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, I think it's clear that Jesus was acting intentionally here. There were a lot of sick people there that day, and Jesus healed one person and then slipped away. This was an intentional act. Jesus wanted to spark a conversation about the Sabbath. We see that again and again in Mark's gospel. In Mark 3, for example, we read, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So whether or not it was appropriate to heal on the Sabbath was a major bone of contention between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Jesus thought it was appropriate, obviously. Jesus made an argument for that in Matthew 12. He said, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, it's very important for us to understand that Jesus never contradicted the Old Testament law. He fulfilled it, right? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The entire Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. It landed on Jesus. So he fulfilled it, and he interpreted it. He said, you have heard it said, but I tell you, Jesus challenged the interpretation of the law being offered by contemporary Judaism. He did not challenge the law itself, right? So he said, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Listen to what he says next. He doesn't say, but I tell you, go ahead and commit adultery. No, no, that would be breaking the law. He doesn't do that. He just says, it's about far more than not sleeping with your neighbor. He says, it's about It's about being careful with your eyes. It's about not even looking at your neighbor. It's really about loving your wife with your whole person. Jesus didn't contradict. Jesus interpreted. That's a whole different thing. Remember, Jesus is replacing the old system with himself. And that includes the old leaders and the old interpretations. The law itself is wholly just and good, but Judaism had turned it into a burden that no one could bear. Jesus is reclaiming the law as the author and originator of it. Remember, Jesus is God, working and speaking, and God does not change his mind, though he is often misrepresented by his people. That's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus to clear up that which we have made clunky, cloudy, and cold. And Jesus is saying here that the Sabbath was intended as a gift for man. You were made for work, but you were made for more than work. You were made for thought and reflection and fellowship and worship. You were made for joy, and a day was set aside to ensure that you would have time for that. The Sabbath was supposed to help you and me and humanity as a whole retain that which is particular to us as creatures made in the image and likeness of God. Without the Sabbath, without a day set aside for these things, man is little more than an animal. He's a worker bee and a busy beaver, but he is less than he was created to be. So the Sabbath was made for man. And therefore, obviously, it is appropriate to do good to a man on the Sabbath. That's kind of the whole idea. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You see, if you claim to have the authority to overturn the official interpretation of the law and you claim to be receiving instructions directly from the Father, you are either in some way equal to God or you are a complete crazy person. And the Jews are right on that score. They have the logic of the argument. They've just come to the wrong conclusion. Verse 19. that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Again, let me just remind you of that quote from C.K. Barrett. He said, the deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. Jesus is saying exactly that here. He is saying that everything he does and everything he says is a reflection of the Father. If you look at me, Jesus says, if you listen to me, Jesus says, you are seeing and hearing what the Father wants you to see and hear of him. I and the Father are one. He has the power of life within himself and he has given that to me. The Son knows the Father perfectly and is revealing that to you. As you respond to the Son so have you responded to the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. That's what Jesus is saying. And the implications of that are absolutely massive. Quite transparently, it means that if you reject Jesus as God's Son, then you do not have eternal life. That has massive implications for our Muslim friends and neighbors. It is not enough to credit Jesus as a prophet if you don't honor him as son. If you don't honor him and recognize him as son, then you do not have eternal life. Verse 24 Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So those are the stakes. If you believe and receive Jesus as the Son of God, as the authorized representation and revelation of God, then you have eternal life. If you don't, you don't. That's what Jesus is saying here. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. the dividing rod of history he has sent him into the world and given him the power of life his word and his deeds are intended to divide all of humanity and to regather a people for eternal life jesus is like a sword that passes through the world of men how you lean when that sword comes to you determines your eternal destiny If you hear his voice as the voice of God, if you see his works as the works of God, and you believe them and accept them, then you have leaned one way. You have leaned into life. But if you hear them or see them in any other way, then you have leaned into death. There is no third way. There is no moderate approach. There is in and there is out, there is life and there is death, because Jesus is God, acting as God to gather the people of God. That's what he's saying about himself in this passage. Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John." For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Here Jesus speaks about the witnesses that testified to his identity. There is, of course, first and foremost, God himself. The works that Jesus do testify that the power of God is at work in him. God spoke at his baptism. So there is ample evidence that God has set his seal of approval upon the work and ministry of Jesus. And then, of course, there's John the Baptist. John pointed at Jesus. John said that he himself was not the one, but after him comes one who was before him. Well, given that John was physically older than Jesus, for him to say that Jesus was before him indicates that John believed that Jesus was preexistent. Jesus was the one who came down from heaven. So we have ample testimony, Jesus says. Now you have to decide what to do with that testimony. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Here, Jesus says something amazing. He says that the whole Old Testament is ultimately pointing towards him. The sacrificial system was pointing towards him. That's why John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The prophets were pointing to him. Even the law was pointing to him. The law proved that people were sinful and powerless and that they needed a payment for sin and a new heart and a new spirit to help them obey. Everything in the Old Testament argued for Jesus. But, and here's the amazing thing, not everybody saw it. Jesus says, you read the Bible, which is about me, which is supposed to drive you to me. And yet you didn't come. I love what Colin Cruz says here. He says, these verses stand as a warning to all who make the study of the scriptures an end in itself and fail to relate to the one about whom the scriptures testify. Amen. Let's finish the chapter. In verses 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you'll receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? In these verses, Jesus says something that we should all hear. He says that if you love the applause of men... Then you will miss the salvation of God, and you will be judged by the word of God, which testifies clearly to the Son of God. What you love determines what you see. So love the Lord, and you will see the glory of God in the face
0: of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God.